this week's Worldwide Podcast, sponsored by Forager Limited. I'm your host, Miles Irving, and I'll shortly be introducing this week's guest, who is none other than wild man Steve Brill from New York State uh, in North America. Um, and Steve's got a great story to tell, which I'll let him tell himself, um, but just a little taster. He's, he's probably the only man ever been arrested for picking a dandelion, and um, that was an event which happened um, some time ago, but it kind of has echoes today with a lot of the things that are happening in the, in the UK um, with organisers such as the organisations such as the, the Royal Parks um, taking it upon themselves to, um, as, they, as they see it, ban foraging. And there just seems to be a, a, just a, bit of, a bit of a mismatch between what's actually going on and uh, perception of what's going on. So I guess we as foragers um, are for now failing to get our message across um, because what is in actual fact a very um, benign and, and beneficial thing, um, people getting back in touch with their landscapes and beginning to uh, develop local food around what's actually growing wild from ecosystems with no human inputs whatsoever that is ending up being perceived as a, as a threat somehow to the health of ecology and to be a sort of, um, almost a kind of plundering of wild nature um, motivated by um, greed and, and general sort of destructive impulses. Um, so quite how we, we, we get from the reality of things to, to this public perception, I really don't know, but... Um, I suppose every week um, that we put out the Worldwide Podcast is, is an attempt to send a different message. Um, but um, at the same time, it, it seems so contrary that there are so many destructive influences um, affecting our wild ecology without there being anything like the same kind of impetus to um, challenge and reverse those those things. So, I mean, the most obvious one being climate change, which in recent weeks, I guess we've started to have some sort of slight flicker of hope that it might be possible to get governments to listen and and um, at least the powers that be are being robustly addressed uh, on these issues. Um, and then closer to home, there's a story which I attempt to tell Steve, but it doesn't really... Uh, open up for me to tell it properly later. So I, I determined I'd tell it in the introduction. So um, as an example of another really destructive thing that's happening every day, almost without remark, and that's the, um, the sort of almost mindless use of uh, herbicides, which um, I've encountered in the last couple of weeks on a piece of ancient grassland, uh, on a, which is a cricket pitch in our village. And that grassland is somewhere where there's a wonderful um, collection of wax caps um, that have been grown there ever since I've been going past over about the last 20 years uh, and I'm pretty sure they've been there for hundreds of years um, whereas I had the very distressing experience of, of watching a man um, spraying herbicides all across that field um, and I've, I suspect it's been going on for for um, you know, the, the, the same would have happened last year because last winter there were no wax caps on this field. Um, and I talked to the chap and asked him what he was doing and why he was doing it. And he said, well, it's a cricket pitch and we want it to, you know, be smoother. And I just thought, this is just incredible. Here's, here's what is suspected or alleged by some local people to be the oldest cricket pitch in the world. Um, and if it's not that, it's certainly a very old one, um, which is obviously served pretty well to play cricket on for all that time, hundreds of years. Um, and now all of a sudden somebody feels that it needs improving and, and all the, all the uh, weeds need to be sprayed, um, which, as I say, I think has already done irreparable damage. And I just, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of getting some of the peer-reviewed science and then just sort of wallpaper in the outside of the, the cricket hut um, with with uh, scientific texts about how pesticides interact with fungus populations, um, and I've already made my views known to the guy. He he very, um, I mean, basically it was more than just the mushrooms. I, I said to him, "Look, you see these plants you're spraying here. You do realise that people eat those, e.g., me. Um, 
more and more people are eating wild plants now. There are little lots of cats here, which is like a dandelion type plant that you can use as a salad or cook it. And he seemed pretty nonplussed to hear that. Um, but he, bless him, he put a note through my door the following day saying that he'd looked at the, the information on the packet of this um, poison that he was using and said it's advised to keep herbivores out, um, out of a site where it's been applied for two weeks after spraying. And this piece of grass obviously is wide open to all kinds of um, sort of rabbits and hares and, and, and whatever. So there's certainly no restriction on them grazing it. And his uh, closing remark was, I'm sure a similar timescale would probably apply in the case of humans. So um, what he didn't really address was the fact that anyone could have gathered those plants. And then along the edge of the field, the nettles had been sprayed, the wild chervil. And then a few days later, at the end of my drive, and we we're very rural, um, our neighbour decided to get his gardener to spray all the nettles around around the edge. So I mean, there's obviously two issues there. One is the one is the loss of biodiversity. I'm pretty sure that that's done for that very ancient population of a diversity of of wax caps there, um, and the fact that people going out foraging um, are at risk if you don't have a hundred percent certainty that no one's had access to a piece of land and no one's sprayed it with herbicides, you could be poisoning yourself when, when you'd gather things from, from public places, which is just, um, well, I think it's not the way it should be. So, um, yeah, okay. Well, there's there's um, there's a couple of reasons to um, perhaps not be so cheerful this week. But I think, you know, the, the podcast, as I keep saying, we, we, we're trying to sow these seeds of hope that there's an intention um, that we can get back into land. And I increasingly feel I, I don't even want to apologize for the sense that I have, mystical as it might sound, that, you know, land is kind of drawing us and calling us back, you know, because there is a complexity and, and a whole to um, the biosphere of which we are a part. And it's like we're... We've turned up to the dance and we're sulkily sitting on the sidelines or worse still, we're sort of throwing fireworks into the middle of the dance to disrupt it. Um, however, I feel that there's this sort of very gracious, forgiving nature to um, the, the the wild ecology that surrounds us. That It's almost like um, just forgiving all of the all of our, um, you know, calamitous activities um, and disruptive effects that we're having as, as humans. And just inviting us back in, but just to kind of come back to the beginning of this train of thought, um, that very coming back in is is the most positive thing that we could do to become participants again, um, rather than antagonists against the general flow of nature. In other words, to participate into the flows of life instead of obtaining our resources from something which is essentially disruptive to the flows of life, i.e., you know... Um, industrial agriculture and global commerce. So there we are. I guess that wraps up that train of thought. So I'll now move on to the main bit of the podcast and introduce this week's guest. So it's an absolute delight and a pleasure to welcome this week's guest to the Worldwide Podcast, wild man Steve Brill, who um, I hope he's not tired of being introduced in this manner, but I'm so amused to know that uh, Steve's first claim to fame and notoriety was being arrested in New York Central Park for picking a dandelion. I'm sure he can tell that story himself. Um, oh, definitely. I'll, I'll let you do that in a minute, Steve. But I'll just I'll just big you up a bit with with regard to your 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 uh, more um, substantial claims to fame, which is that you've been um, teaching wild plants, um, edible wild plants, and medicinal wild plants for how many years now? Since 1982, I've been leading public tours throughout the greater New York area. Fantastic. So you're a real veteran of uh, wild food education. And, yeah, I, have, uh, I have fun with this. I work with the public schools, nature centers, day camps, garden clubs, uh, teaching farms, museums, uh, some weird ones, too. There's a very famous cemetery called Greenlawn Cemetery in Brooklyn, uh, where celebrities from the 19th and 20th century are buried. 
and uh, they hired me to do a tour. Every time we tried pulling up uh, the burdock route, someone would pull it down in the other direction. I guess they didn't have that much else to do. Um, it still went quite well until it was time for me to get paid. Those deadheads just wouldn't pay up. It's a disgrace. It's a disgrace. And of course, when, when you're eating plants from a cemetery, we, we, we always find that uh, an interesting thought to forage in a graveyard because, you know, here in Kent, we have a lot of salt marsh habitat. And, and where you have the lamb uh, and the sheep grazing on the salt marsh, we call that salt marsh lamb. Um, I just kind of wonder what we should be calling those dandelions when they're growing in a graveyard. I don't know, but that was that was a one-off, uh, one-off tour, and of course you do have to be sure they're not spraying chemicals, which they told me they were not. Yeah, well, that that is increasingly a hazard. Um, I'm waiting for there to be a real mass um, popular interest in foraging that that it'll be a way that we can kick back against people using chemicals because really. Uh, you know, my, one of my neighbours sprayed the nettles at the end of our drive the other day, and it's good job we didn't harvest those nettles because obviously you can't tell when it's just been sprayed. Yeah, and they pick up they pick up nitrate. Yeah, you know you know where all that came from. Uh, that's basically in the Middle Ages after the fall of Rome. Um, people were afraid if they lived in a forest in a cabin, they opened the door, there could be a bear behind the trees and uh, the bear would eat them. So cutting the um, trees around the residence and clearing the land and then letting the grass grow, which is uh, pretty easy where you are, it rains all the time and you had sheep to, to uh, mow the lawns, mm. actually, actually worked environmentally, but then we became more and more obsessed with uh, uh, with lawns and here in the U.S. where the natural habitat is forest, they use so many intensive sprays and and chemicals for the lawn to keep the bears away uh, 500 years ago that uh, everything is being killed and the white-footed mouse rebounds the most quickly, has lots of litters, reproduces really quickly, and it carries Lyme disease and now the ticks we have here are giving uh, people epidemics of Lyme disease. What's the connection with the white-footed mouse there, Steve? So what, why it carries it? the Lyme disease and gives it to the ticks. The ticks are not born with Lyme disease. Yeah. And we buy, buy all of the uh, chemicals and spraying and killing the predators that would eat the white-footed mouse Roughly. and the competitors that would compete for food with the white-footed mouse uh, the white-footed mouse is the uh, great beneficiary yeah. of the lawn industry. And after the Great Depression in the 30s, anyone seen with vegetables in their, in their front yard uh, in America, I don't know about uh, the UK, anyone seen with a vegetable garden would be considered uh, to make the neighborhood look poor and lower the property values. So there are laws, thou shalt have lawn uh, in the US. I don't know what it's uh, what it's like where you are, but uh, there is. Well, right. Yeah, it's, it's, well, it's kind of worse here because what, what people are doing now is, um, you know, they just want to have block pavings in their front lawn or, or they have decking in the back. In other words, they cover it up with boards. So you, you don't even have, contact with the soil now they're covering that's, up with wood or with paving uh, slabs yeah that's even worse well i hope mushrooms sprout on all the wood <laughs> that's that's my curse yeah. to that industry but on the other hand if a lawn is is not being bombed with chemicals it's um it's a good source of wild edibles we we find that in quite a lot of green spaces here but um i was absolutely infuriated just a couple of weeks ago because we we have a piece of ancient grassland near us which is a cricket pitch and it has claims to being the oldest cricket pitch in england which since cricket was apparently invested in, invented in england uh makes it the oldest cricket pitch in the world um now that may or may not be true but suffice it to say they've been playing cricket there a long time steve and it has a population of a, a of a fungus called wax caps, which is known to be uh, a, 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 um, 
you know, it's a it's a sign of ancient grasslands that only grow on at least well-established or possibly ancient grasslands. That's anyway, interesting. We get wax caps in the woods here. I know must that be different must be different uh, different species. It isn't different species. I've found I found grassland species in the wood here and was completely puzzled. And I put questions on a, on a mushroom forum and and people said, well, you know, in this in America, I heard this in North America, we get those species in the woods, and I I had found them for the first time in in the woods here. But anyway, this this um, cricket. Well, they'd have to they'd have to check the DNA to see whether the species. Uh, uh, match across across the ocean, and of course, the way you can determine the DNA of any species is ask it to pull down its genes. Ah, <laughs> yeah, they have great things. Obviously, on on lawns, we have a lot of your plants: chickweed, lamb's quarters, which I think you call good good King Henry. Um, oh, here is speaking of lawns. Here is my daughter Violet. She grows on lawns. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Violet. Welcome to the World Wild Podcast of this conversation. Yeah, your dad's told me a little bit about you, but um, uh, we were off. Yeah, we weren't recording then, so maybe uh, tell everybody about yourself. What's your connection with foraging, Violet? Well, ever since I was two months old, I started coming on our tours, and I fell in love with nature. I basically grew up with it. Like people identify like um, carrots and tomatoes in the grocery store. I identify like lamb's quarters and sheep sorrel and like all that stuff. And basically, I've always loved nature throughout my whole life. And I also am studying like birds and ornithology. And I help my dad lead on. I co-lead his tours, and I'm kind of leading some of my own now. And I help co-lead them ever since I was nine to um like i want to help educate people about the environment and how to take care of it and by doing this with all the plants and she's also a bird expert fantastic oh. i loved birds too when i was a kid i still do but yeah i can relate to that i can relate to that and yeah, speak, speaking of birds she found when she was 10 we were driving to a tour uh from the moving car she spotted a 30 pound chicken mushroom wow Lather Latiporus sulfurius. Yeah, we cooked it that day, and we had it for the next two years. It was delicious. I, that's my favorite mushroom, chicken mushrooms. And you had it from the same tree again the next season? Is no, it was from the freezer. We, we oh. cooked it the day, and we froze it, and we ate it and ate it, and we still had more two years later. Yeah, I made recipes every day for the next week, and what we didn't eat, I froze. Uh, although that, that is a can be a dangerous mushroom. If you have too much of it and you open the freezer, the container falls on your foot. Ah, that yeah, that's a hazard. Yeah, that's that's um, they don't tell you that in the um, in the mushroom edible mushroom guides. Yeah, that's an important piece of information. <laughs> so, Violet, I'm fascinated to know what your peer group thinks about your activities. I mean, do do, do are you going to school or are you home educated or? Yeah, I go to the Marinette high school i'm a freshman yeah. and um my dad did come into the school a few weeks ago um to do lead a tour for the culinary um for any cup for the culinary class and he came in in seventh grade and did a presentation for the class and during elementary school he came and did a tour for the class every year and i tell my friends about it and they know about it and they think it's pretty cool um sometimes like a lot of my friends like used to come on like the tours and stuff now we're like all focused on like school and stuff but um they're like supportive of it and they um do like they do like nature and they like being outside a lot of the time but it's really like it's really me who's like loves nature at the school yeah. and there are like the um there are like gardening clubs and like eco clubs at our school and um, I was a part of like one of those clubs, like the Club Hope, um, for like old middle school. And um, yeah, my friends, they're supportive of it. They like it. I, sometimes I get them to try um, the plants outside. And yeah. um, they've gotten used to it. They don't think it's like odd anymore, but I'm sure just a random person on the street would think it's kind of odd. And do you think, do you think they would go further than that? Would, would they eat the plants when you're not there? Would they take them home and eat them? Well, um, well, my friends. I don't know about. Um, I don't know about like my friends. Um, they they are they're supportive of it. They're not like for.
foragers themselves, though. They're supportive of us, but they don't forage themselves. Um, but I do, like, say, oh, look, that's, like, a European starling. When I see, like, the bird or um, here, try some, like, wood sorrel, tastes like lemonade. And sometimes they'll remember it. Um, I don't think they're going to go out on their cells and try to forage. But, like, but everyone who comes on our tours, as when they come on 10 tours, we say that, you know, lots of, like, almost half the plants, like, all, almost half, like, the common plants besides the rare ones and the uses for them, how to identify the common ones. And then they'll, I think, I'm pretty sure that they're going to go out and try to forage for themselves. But sometimes we'll run into someone who said, oh, look, I came on your tour a couple of years ago. I picked wood sorrel on the side of the street when I see it, but I haven't been able to remember anything else. Yeah, well, at least you gave them one. I mean, that's, that's, um, I think we, just a little exposure, just like pointing out the stuff, just a little exposure to like the nature and the environment, um, just like pointing out what the things are, not even going on a whole foraging walk is like, is pretty good in terms of like trying to connect more people to like nature and the environment. Well, you know, I always think about this, you know, when, 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 when we, when we pick something up and eat it, that's growing in the place where we live. We're, we're starting to be just like the birds and the squirrels and, and so on and, and just have that direct con contact and that direct source of food, you know. So just that one little action, you never know what that's going to um, result in in terms of somebody later in life that might, you know, fully engage. But but it's all it's already a totally different world, isn't it, than going to the supermarket and getting something that comes from somewhere else that's in a packet that you had to pay money for. Yeah, and I've been doing these tours so long uh, I get contacts of people doing environmental work who uh, got first got interested in uh, nature and the environment coming on tours when they were school children. So there's one guy uh, who has, uh, he's an architect, has an environmental organization in Queens, which is one of the boroughs of New York City. And uh, the park near where I grew up, Forest Park in Queens, had an abandoned uh, freight railroad line uh, and the city decided that it would be great to have subways going through this beautiful wooded park and this guy fought the city to a standstill and they're putting in a walkway and bikeway where the uh, railroad line was so I'm very proud of him and he started as a school kid with me back in the 80s or 90s and I I get other emails, people who are doing ecotourism around the world. So foraging is definitely a gateway drug for environmental conservation. Definitely. And yeah, buying stuff in the store that you have to like pay money for and like a lot of the time is like been sprayed or like is artificial, even if it is organic, it's completely different experience. Than, um, than going outside and finding like and finding sheep sorrel and um, shepherd's purse. It's like it's fun to be able just to identify the plants outside. Um, that people have been like Native Americans also have been like using. People have been using for like food and home remedies. It's fun to be able to do that and just know what you see instead of just looking at it as all green green stuff. Yeah, and one of, one of my things is coming up with. Uh... Uh, healthy whole foods vegan recipes with the wild plants and common plantain plantado major uh, you're almost certainly using for mosquito bites and skin irritations it inspired Johnson Johnson to invent the band-aid but uh, one of the things I do with this is I make a uh, puree of one cup cooked chickpeas one cup white miso half a cup olive oil, um, a uh, cup of uh, gout weed, which you call bishop's weed in the in the UK. Ground elder, in fact, as well. That's another name for it. Ground elder, yeah. Okay, um, six cloves of uh, six cloves of garlic, um, two teaspoons of rosemary, one teaspoon of thyme. I puree that in a food processor. And I get the largest common plantain leaves and uh, mix that together. Um, one part, one part uh, common plantain. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, one part of this uh, savory gout weed puree to five parts common plantain leaves, and I bake them about 30 minutes, 300 degrees, 
and it makes incredible spicy chips that uh, taste like uh, taste like uh, kale chips, but way way more flavorful from something that people are stepping on and trying to destroy. That's amazing. So you're you're using the whole plantain leaves and just just yes. them with this paste. Yeah, I slather the paste on yeah, and yeah. bake it, and it turns into turns into chips. And, and you're baking it at a low temperature, three hundred degrees. And you can of course we do the same thing with another plant called bitter dock, which has a horrible bitter flavor. But then we put a sweet spread on it that counteracts the bitterness, and we call it sweet dock. Yeah, and we yeah. give that as tips on the doers also. Yeah, Rumex obtusifolius. You probably have that in the UK. Yeah, yeah. I like curly dock better raw. But uh, that one is, is good uh, cooked. And when it's partially roasted and you can still, uh, you can, it's still flexible, you can add stuffings. Uh, so you can use it like a cabbage in a stuffed, uh, stuffed cabbage recipe filled with rice, uh, spices, and baked in tomato sauce. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or, or fill it with uh, stewed apples and black walnuts. Black walnuts you don't have in the UK. And you get these really, really delicious uh, wild apple rolls. When it's almost too crisp to roll, then you then you uh, fill it. And we've done this with seaweeds too. Um, I presume you have uh, rockweed Fucus vesiculosus. It's an Atlantic seaweed in the UK. Um, oh, I'd have to check that. We certainly have a lot of Fucus species. Um, Okay, this is this is one that has uh, uh, like air bubbles uh, in pairs, and it bifurcates. Um, is originally a hard one. Uh, rockweed was a hard one for me to work with because I'm a jazz fan. Uh, but yeah, we made make a similar puree with uh, dates, stevia, and melted chocolate in the in uh instead of olive oil sesame oil and the white miso and the chickpeas and roast it and it comes out like chocolate flavored seaweed and then we put that in a trail mix of cashews carob chips raisins and powdered stevia and it comes out as a great trail mix i love that trail mix yeah and once uh, in the summer it melted when i put it in the came home and put everything in the refrigerator it re-solidified and we got like bars so then what we did was we melted the chocolate first and we then and we put it and we um dumped it over the trail mix and then we in little like um longer like ice cube little containers like longer ones so it'll come out like bars and when we freeze that it comes out perfectly yeah that one is called rock candy fantastic yeah so i've, I've been i've been exploring tons and tons of uh, unusual recipe possibilities with all these plants for decades yeah that's so cool because it's, it's one thing to know that you could eat something but i think uh we're getting to the next level when when we're developing recipes and and uh and some of these things it sounds like you've been making them for years in your in your family right it's uh yeah, yeah but i keep coming yeah. i keep coming yeah. up with new i keep coming up with new ones okay but are there are there are there, are there old favorites that you just do year after year uh yeah yeah, I mean, I, I have a curried sunflower seed recipe I've had for years. I have a wild sourdough starter. I've been making sourdough rye bread with it for years. But uh, in the last couple of years, I've been adding raisins, stevia, um, common spice bush, Lindera benzone. That's native to here. You don't have that in the UK. And uh, sassafras, which was traditionally used for root beer, but I discovered that if you, and uh, for gumbo, and I discovered if you take the cambium, the layer um, surrounding the wood of the root of the saplings, uh, it makes an incredible culinary seasoning. So I've been uh, using that in the rye sourdough raisin bread, and that comes out really well too. So are you saying that the, the traditional thing to use is the root, but you've discovered the same flavor is basically in the... In the inner bark of the of the branches and so on, is, is uh, it's the it's the inner bark or cambium of the root of the saplings, and it's traditionally used for tea and root beer. And oh. I seem to be the only person that has ever just uh, peeled it from the uh, from the root 
and use it as a culinary seasoning, and it is uh, it is incredible. Sure, I mean, I guess it stands to reason. If it makes a good tea, then you can use that flavor in another way. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good call. Yeah, it has a combination flavor of uh, root beer, cinnamon, uh, and uh, anise, yeah. and a little dash of licorice in there. And I don't know why no one's ever used it as a culinary seasoning. Of course, the FDA here Yeah, that's does, what I was going to say, because you're not allowed to sell sassafras. It's illegal. Yeah, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, discovered to their horror that if you take the equivalent of only 400 cups of sassafras tea made from artificial, artificial concentrate, concentrate each day for for a two years, and you just happen to be a rat, then you have a higher chance of developing liver cancer. Yeah, rodents. Because rodents could um, convert the active carcinogen that's um, saffron. What is it? It's not an it's active, not a ingredient, saffron, yeah, into a carcinogen. Into a carcinogen. Humans don't. And uh, the FDA doesn't like saffron in the first place because it's the starting point for making ecstasy. So uh, uh, even though no human has ever gotten sick from drinking sassafras tea and beer due to its alcohol content is 40 times as carcinogenic to humans as sassafras is to rodents, um, beer is still on the market and sassafras is not. Proving, proving two important points. One, one, there's a stronger beer lobby in Washington than a sassafras lobby. And two, there's a lot of rats in the FDA. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how big that sassafras lobby is. <laughs> um, yeah, Steve, I'd love you to tell the story of you getting arrested in Central Park. Can you tell that story? I think I've, I think I've told it. I think I can still remember it. I've told it a few times. You were there. You were there yeah, so, so 19, 1986, I was leading a foraging tour in Central Park, um, March 29th of 1986. And it turned out there were undercover agents on the tour, a man and a woman. They said they were married. They never held hands or kissed, so I figured they'd been married a long time. Uh, the man kept taking they pictures. They paid him with marked bills. They paid me with marked bills. The, the Violet, you weren't even born then. The, the man, man kept taking pictures, and he told them to hold up the specimen, only he was the specimen. You've heard this story before. Yes. <laughs> a few thousand times. At the end of the tour, I took one leaf of a dandelion. They're, they're really good in March in this part of the world before they flower and become bitter. And ate that. The male ranger ducked behind the tree, took out a hidden walkie-talkie. There he is on 81st Street. Go get him. Every park ranger in New York City popped out from behind the trees. They surrounded Unless me. he bopped them on the head of the dandelion. Yeah, they put me in handcuffs. Unless you climb up a tree. And uh, then they searched me. I don't know if they're looking for weeds or weed, but they hauled me off to the police station in handcuffs. They took fingerprints. They took mug shots. Uh, they searched my backpack. Fortunately, I'd eaten all the evidence. <laughs> then they issued me a desk appearance warrant that said I had to go to court and could face a year in jail if convicted. The charge was criminal mischief for removing vegetation from the park because I'd eaten the dandelion. So I went home. There's no internet then, but I used the phone and called every TV station, newspaper, um, uh, press uh, press service. Next morning on the way to the newsstand, five cops came after What do you want, he said. I haven't eaten a single dandelion today. I haven't even had breakfast yet. They said... We don't care. We want your autograph. <laughs> I was in front pages of newspapers around the country, CBS Evening News, uh, Letterman, MTV, Dan the Rather. BBC, the BB, Dan Rather. Uh, no one remembers that anymore. That was decades ago. But I even with the BBC interviewed me, too. So I made it uh, onto the onto the onto the BBC News. And after that, they took me to court. I served wild man's five-borough salad on the steps of the Manhattan Criminal Courthouse. The press ate it up. Yeah, it went viral for the second time before going viral was even a thing. Then the parks uh, personnel were forced to turn over a new leaf. They negotiated with me. They dropped the charges and hired me to lead the same tours I was leading when I was arrested. Um, 
And I worked for them for the next four years until the administration changed. But former Parks Commissioner Adrian Benepe said that he wasn't actually arrested for um, removing the vegetation from the park. He was, which is, but he was actually arrested for. Um, they were afraid of frivolous lawsuits that someone on a tour would pretend they'd be poisoned, sue the city, and point to him that they'd allowed foraging, and they and it was false arrest. Yeah, this is what I found out 20 years later from a former parks commissioner. So you have to charge someone in this country uh, with uh, what they, the reason that you're arresting them, not make something else up. So that is technically false arrest, and I wish they'd do it again. And then that was that was probably the best thing that ever could have happened to yes. you and the culture of foraging in, in New York City. Yes, de definitely. But uh, now, for some reason, they just don't have the heart to come after me anymore. And we had we had uh, close to 60 people in Central Park on uh, on Sunday. Yeah. But it's interesting that that was their concern. So their concern was somebody being poisoned. And no, no, their concern was someone pretending to be poisoned. And they point to him and say, foraging is allowed and sue the city. Uh, yeah. Say, yeah, it's your fault. You let for people forage. There's wild man Steve Brill. Now we're going to sue you. People, uh, uh, bureaucrats here are very, very crazy about lawsuits. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm really surprised at that. I, I thought that the, the original reason that they, they uh, were opposing what you were doing was a similar thing to what's happening a lot now in England, which is that people just get it into their heads that, that foragers are going to damage the place by just simply gathering a few leaves. But it's kind of gone crazy here. We've got Royal Parks and, and um, various organisations such as the... Uh, Forestry Commission trying to ban foraging. Right, um, it would be horrible. The Japanese knotweed will go extinct. Uh, <laughs> I know how much the Brits love Japanese knotweed. That is a delicious plant. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, they're poisoning all of that just now. Most of our Japanese knotweed patches have, have all been poisoned and um, and disappeared. It's it's um, it's a form of hysteria, I think. Um, we have we have Japanese knotweed patches that are in the middle of nowhere. And we've been harvesting them for years and making Japanese knotweed crumble and Japanese knotweed syrup and Japanese knotweed salad. And um, yeah. same as me. And I, I grill I grill the shoots like asparagus. They're delicious. And I also have a recipe in my wild vegan cookbook where when the knotweed gets larger, I peel I peel it because the skin gets tough then. I use a chopstick to poke through the um, uh, the barriers between each section, and then I fill it with uh, my own vegan cheese and bake it in tomato sauce with other vegan cheeses and make not ziti. Sounds good. Yeah, there's so many delicious recipes. And I'm sure you know it's uh, besides vitamin C, it has resveratrol, which lowers your risk of cardiovascular disease. Some suggestion that it's that it's uh, it's got anti-aging properties as well. I don't know if that's been substantiated, but people were talking about that when they that, that it would help you um, not to age so soon. I, I wouldn't be surprised. So you got any more crazy stories, Steve? We've got tons of crazy stories. There was this time where we let a tour for the Pop Scouts. It's like Cub Scouts, except they're puppies. They're old women with little puppies that they get puppies that fit in your purse. And they have a bat, they had a vest when they had badges and they earned badges for doing things. And the Pub Scouts earned a badge for coming on the tour. I also led a tour for a flock of parrots. I was hired by the African Gray Society of New York City uh, to do a tour in Central Park. African Gray parrots are uh, supposed to be as uh, as intelligent as uh, toddlers, uh, maybe even five-year-olds. Very, very smart birds. And they had their wings clipped so they wouldn't fly away. And uh, I had one by the name of Sweepy on my arm for the whole tour, and we became, uh, we became friends. I've always loved animals. Uh, so the humans, the owners, 
paid me well. They were very nice people, but they were incredibly uptight. They wouldn't try mulberries. They wouldn't try sheep sorrel. They wouldn't try, actually it was in the summer, cornelian cherries were in season, yeah. uh, uh, cornus, cornus moss. And so I finally started showing all the plants to the parrots and the parrots paid attention and everything I gave them that was edible, uh, they, uh, they ate. And with the Cornelian cherries, uh, they were very gourmet in their approach. They'd hold the Cornelian cherry in one claw and peel the, the skin, which humans don't do, uh, before, they, uh, before they eat it. Um, that's, uh, I presume you've, you've had them where you are. They're used as ornamentals around the world. They come from, uh, Yeah, there's a Cornelian cherry planted outside the school in our village. Um, I, I seem to be the only one that, that eats the fruit, but yeah, very delicious. Yeah, that was a hard one for me to learn. I had no one to teach me and there were field guides that had awful cooking information and cook all the greens and bacon fat cook all the fruits and sugar and uh, not much more not much more beyond that um so i and it's in the dogwood family which has poisonous species mm. so um i didn't know whether it was edible or not so there was a guy by the name of bob who came on one of my tours and he's one of these people that whatever you say, he doesn't listen. Please call ahead of time so I know who's coming. Please don't be late. He, he shows up in the middle of the tour, completely unexpected. Yeah, and then um, whatever you tell him, he does the opposite. Oh, wow, man, these berries look really good. Can I eat them? Uh, sorry, Bob, I know they're Cornelian cherries from the tree guy, but I haven't seen any information on their edibility. Yeah, but what if I just eat one? What if one is the poisonous dose? So as soon as my back is turned, he pops one into his mouth. I see it from the corner of my eye, and I don't know whether to, to be happy that maybe I'll finally be rid of Bob. Yeah, but I don't want someone to die on my tooth. Yeah, but if it's Bob, it would be worth it. But Bob acted totally normal for Bob. He went over to a woman who was 30 years younger than him and wouldn't leave her side for the whole tour. Hey, what are you doing after the walk? You want to go on a walk with me? Or if you had enough, why don't you come to my place? Oh, no, I'm not interested. Yeah, but after the tour, after, uh, that woman called him up and said, Mr. Bill, that old man followed me home. I'm his, I slammed the door in the face of his face to get rid of him. I'm not coming on another one of your tours again. And banged down the phone, and I never saw her again. So then I figured the Cornelian cherry might be edible, and I finally found in some obscure book, again, long before the Internet, that it's the national fruit of Turkey. And then I collected a whole bunch of them and took them home, and they were terrible. It turned out they were unripe, and when I left them sitting uh, uh, in the in the kitchen on a uh, in a bowl not they knowing ripen. what to do with them they ripen and got soft they and... ripen off the bush it's one of the fruits here they like they can ripen off the bush yeah there's no other None, wild yeah. fruit in this part of the world that ripens like bananas after you after you pick them and they are delicious then um i had this is before i had a car i was on a cable talk show in New Jersey. I lived in Queens, so the people were kind enough to send a cab to pick me up and send another cab to drive me back. So this is something you might not know about the Cornelian Cherry. The cab driver was from Turkey. So at a red light, I showed him my uh, uh, one of my books that had Cornelian Cherry in it. Oh, we know this one in Turkey. Yes, you're right. It's from Turkey. In ancient times, uh, like in the Bronze Age, the people would take one of the long, uh, uh, slender uh, sticks from the, from the bush, strip off the leaves, and give it to a boy. Then they would take another a uh, thin, slender, uh, uh, long branch from the tree and give it to another boy. Of course, you know what the two boys would do. They would start dueling. And apparently all of the, all of the mythical figures in the Bronze Age and in ancient times that were skilled with swords in the Middle East learned how to use swords 
with the uh, long slender twigs of the cornelian cherry to this uh, and to this day if i have two uh, boys on my tour and we get find the cornelian cherry i'll give them both twigs and they will prove it by starting to duel with each other and uh Unless you get a direct hit in the eye, it's not like a branch of an oak tree where you're gonna, going to injure the other kid. And they're flexible and fast, so they work. A long, thin, flexible, yeah. Well, I never would have thought of it. I'll never look at the uh, Cornelian cherry tree again in quite the same way. Yeah, I would have never known it if the Turkish cabbie hadn't, uh, hadn't mentioned it to me. Isn't it, isn't it fantastic about you know having these cities that are so cosmopolitan you can you can learn about plants from all over the world if you just bump into the right character yeah yeah and i've been doing the plants in the u.s now for uh, many decades and i haven't even scratched the surface of what you can do with uh uh with these plants in the kitchen and i'm still learning new ones uh do you have paper mulberries not mulberries paper mulberries in the uk i don't believe we do Okay. Um, yeah, we just, they never had fruit. We thought they were not edible at all. Two years ago, we were walking across the park. We stared, there was paper mulberry above us. We were looking, we were walking, we looked on the ground, and there was all this fruit splattered on the ground, like this orange fruit. It's like a little ball of, like, tree stuff, and then little orange spikes of sweet, delicious fruit. Like the little, um, like, like the little things that have, like, the fruit inside of an orange coming out of the, like, um, of, like, in a spiky ball, basically. And we looked up. It was coming from a paper mulberry. Never, my dad's never seen them in 37 years, and then, but then two years ago, we found them. And last year, they fruited again. Yeah, so yeah. either, either I was missing. We're just missing. scratching the surface of this, and not everybody knows about this, obviously, but, and, um, but enough people do that, like, the cab driver and, like, other people have some, like, little bits of outside information about plants, even if they're not a big forager. And all that combined, spread by word of mouth, gets everyone more information. And, of course, the internet. Yeah. I think it's super cool, and, and it's, it's great to hear that you're still discovering stuff, like, in your in your neighborhood. Like, I, 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 I feel like it's, it's almost like places keep things secret and then, you know, so just to keep things interesting. They're called paper mulberries because they were the, the tree was used for making paper. I presume you have the regular mulberries, more species. We do, and we also we have some of the of the white mulberry that um, people planted for silkworms. I think some people. I, I don't think it worked out, but people did plant white mulberries for for silkworms in various places. So. Yeah, the same in the the same in the U.S. The, all of the farming catalogs in the 19th century were selling the farmers paper mulberry, uh, not paper mulberry, white mulberries uh, to start a silk industry, but our summers are too, uh, too dry and the winters are too cold, but now we have the trees all over. And of course, what I do is I find a tree with the best tasting fruit that also has branches that are uh, within reach. And because there's so many mulberries, that's not very hard to do and then shake the branches over a drop cloth, you get a really big harvest very quickly. And you do have to spend some time picking out uh, leaves and twigs, unripe fruits, and a spider here or there. But you still get a huge harvest, and uh, they both dehydrate and freeze well if you have more than you can, uh, more than you can eat. Uh, definitely one of, my, one of my favorite fruits. And of course, I make all kinds of recipes with them, and I enjoy them raw. They're really, they're really, really delicious. I just want to get something in, um, Steve, about a, a, a plant you mentioned earlier, just because it's kind of funny. Uh, so you mentioned lamb's quarters. Yes. And that, that's got another name in English, which is fat hen. Yes. Uh, but do you know it has another name in English, which is miles? Which is what? Miles. Miles, really? So I've, heard, I've heard it called Good, Good King Henry, also. Okay. Um, well, the, the name that I, so it's it's my name spelt with a Y, and um, I never knew that. And so somebody dug out this old historical reference, and they made me up a T-shirt with, with with a recipe, and it says it says take some miles and boil them, and <laughs> serve them with butter, and you shall have a good dish. And uh, yeah, it's referring to fat hen. 
Oh, very, very cool. And uh, I still don't, I think we don't know where it originated because um, it was mentioned in ancient uh, texts in Europe and seeds were found in the settlements of Native Americans, uh, which they which they ground up and grind up and use for flour uh, before Columbus came to America. So it probably originated on one continent or another and migrating birds blown off course by storms with muddy feet that had the seeds probably transferred it from one continent to the other. Well, it could uh, even pass through the gut, I think, Steve. You know, it's possible that some of those seeds just pass through the gut of a bird. That, well, that's possible, too, yeah. Yeah, and the same with amaranth. That's both old world and new world. Well, you know, I'm fascinated with that plant because I, I've done some research on it because, you know, it's so closely related to quinoa, which is, right. which is um, super popular. So basically, with, with fat hen seed, you're talking about wild quinoa. And... Um, and we realized that in in certain kinds of agricultural fields, especially with sugar beet in the UK, you get loads of fat hen grown there. And of course, each plant could have up to 50,000 seeds. We thought, this is crazy. You know, the, the, the farmers are, are spraying to get rid of this, or they're maybe pulling it out by hand. And I did some research and found out that fat hen is actually the most prolific agricultural weed on a global scale. It's found in Australia, it's found in South America, North America, all over the place, and even very similar species in India. I'm not sure about Africa, but um, I suspect it must be there as well in some in some ways. So we, we're really fascinated with the idea of um, you know that being harvested as a by crop. You know, because when you think about people spraying an agricultural field, they're spending money to put poison on that field to kill one of the most nutritious plants on earth. You know, and that's that's the leaf and the seed. Are more nutritious than most things people eat every day. So yeah, we've we've been doing some thinking about could you, you know, could could the uh, the way people harvest crops be more flexible so that they they get the weeds too? Because um, some of these sugar beet fields we have in in East Anglia, not far from here, you know, you'd get a significant pile of seed at the end of it if you took all of the, all of the seed that was growing on that on that field. Right. Over here, once in a while, they sell it in farmers markets, but again, it doesn't it doesn't get the appreciation it needs. And uh, as we both know, it's incredibly delicious. Almost any kind of uh, recipe from uh, the vegan cream spinach uh, made with lamb's quarters recipe I make uh, to just throwing it in salads is absolutely wonderful. Yeah, it's delicious. It's a really good wild edible. Listen, can I can I ask you what what is your favorite wild edible? Do you have one? I hate yes, it the violet. <laughs> violet is my favorite vegetable for obvious reasons. Um, my favorite. I like the simple ones. I love wood sorrel. It's sour. It just like adds a sour taste to everything. Black birch is also great because I love to make um stick pudding with it. It's like a winter. It has a wintergreen oil of wintergreen and a methosalicylate, which is also a low dose aspirin that the Native Americans use. But um, we we put the sticks in a tapioca pudding and this we flavor in the um cambium. The layer underneath the bark has the wintergreen oil. It flavors the pudding completely with wintergreen and makes it delicious. And um, also, I love the Kentucky coffee tree. I love hunting for the well, Those are both native, so yeah. you need to tell him. Uh, do you have any birches that have uh, oil of wintergreen in them? I, I would have thought they all do. I mean, certainly, certainly the ones that we have here do. Um, yeah, we have silver birch is the main one. Um, okay, that must be very similar to black birch. Yeah. So what I, what I do with that is I... Uh, put in seven cups of non-dairy milk, almond milk or coconut milk, a cup of tapioca pearls, a cup of the black birch twigs, about an inch and a half of vanilla bean, two teaspoons of freshly grated lemon rind, a tablespoon of liquid, clear liquid stevia, that's a non-sugar uh, sweetener that I, that I use. Yeah, and yeah. I simmer that on low heat for uh, 15 minutes, stirring very often as the tapioca can burn at the bottom of the pot, and then remove the sticks and the vanilla bean, 
Oh, and also one cup of raisins goes in there. And you have an incredibly delicious sweet tapioca pudding with a combination flavor of wintergreen, um, vanilla bean, lemon rind, and uh, black birch. It comes and it, out as a great pudding. We serve it on our tours. Um, yeah, and I also love... Um, I love the mushrooms. I love Hen of the Woods and Chicken Mushroom. Those are my favorites. What I like to do is put a spread on them, coat them um, with the spread, then put, dump them um, in breadcrumbs and um, fry them on a pan, like fried chicken. And Hen of the Woods and Chicken Mushroom are great that way. Um, I love finding the berries are also delicious. Like the purple flowering raspberry, a type of wild raspberry, is way better than the store-bought ones. And... Um, and in terms of nuts, black walnuts are delicious. Yeah, which you guys, uh, which you guys don't have, um, really, really good walnuts. Mm. That's beautiful. So when when you when you say that violet's your favorite vegetable, are you talking about you use the leaves in salads? I'll use them in salads. I'll cream them. I'll I'll steam them, and then add some sautéed uh, sautéed garlic, uh, olive oil, tamari soy sauce, and serve them. Um, sort of similar to uh, the American South way of preparing greens, except they use except they use um, fat back, which is pig fat, instead of the olive oil, garlic, and tamari. But you get the same savory and oil okay. um, uh, combination. So it's just a different way of getting the same kind of uh, similar result. So lots of things I, I do with them. We also freeze the flowers um, in ice cube trays. You freeze, uh, you yeah. fill the ice cube tray halfway, freeze it, put a violet in each compartment, cover it with, with water, and then freeze that, and then the violet is in the center of the ice cube. Very nice. Funnily enough, I've just sent off today, there's a, there's a bartender that wants to put wild things in ice cubes. So I, I've sent him such a variety. I've sent him daisies and plantain flowers. We even sent him some ants. And, uh, yeah, he just wants to do this thing of showing that, showing all the wild stuff in the center of an ice cube. It's a, it's a lovely thing to do. Oh, I haven't thought of putting daisies in. I'll, uh, I'll definitely try that. Well, it's funny. I was just on the phone to him. He's saying, what can I put in an ice cube? And I was just walking around outside, and I thought, well, why not, why not put a daisy in an ice cube? So, yeah, I'll see how he gets on. There'll be a picture of it, um, I, I expect. He's going to send me some pictures. Um, yeah, we do a lot of tours. Of, we do some tours with bartenders, and they go crazy over like the dandelions and the mugwort and stuff like that. Very cool. Yeah, and of course, mugwort used to be used for brewing beer. I've, I've never tried using brewing beer. Yeah, but, mug, because they put it in their mugs of beer. And mm. wort is an old name for plant. Yeah, yeah. Right, that's... Uh, uh, used for dream enhancement too. I don't. I don't use it. It's uh, uh, related to ragweed, and if I hold it up up to my nose, it gives me a headache. Uh, so that's one that's I, I don't. I don't use. Hey, I've got a. I've got a nice bird watching story, Violet, that you might like from this weekend. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, we um, we a couple of years ago, we we were just driving past um, some birch trees. And I just, just, it just happened to be the perfect moment um, that a woodpecker landed on this tree and out came some babies. And I don't even know why I looked. I just looked to the left and there's this. So then we went there with my son and daughter and we just sort of hid a little bit further back and sat still. And we would sit there for ages just watching the mother and the father bird come and feed their babies. Wow, that's but, amazing. Yeah, but we got to know the sound. And so... We were walking through some woods the other day, and I heard that sound again. What's that sound? That's a familiar sound. So we thought, well, that's this woodpecker babies. There must be a woodpecker hole near here. So we looked around, and sure enough, there was the hole. And we thought, well, we'll sit down. And then the same thing happened again. The, the, the mother came and fed, and the father came and fed. And that's great. That's great. But, but here's the thing. Because we were sitting there, I was just staring at this tree. And I think it's a, it's a pine tree that the hole was in, but there's this other tree right next to it with these blossoms on it and these very distinctive leaves. Well, we have this rare fruit tree in England called the wild service tree. It's uh, Sorbus torminalis. Um, and um, 
it's got the most beautiful fruit that you eat in the winter when when they sort of go slightly rotten. We call it bletting, and mm -hmm. and, and they're sort of soft and sticky with an almond flavored fruit. Wild service tree, but in in England they're usually quite small uh, because the old trees have all died. Uh -huh. and and they don't set seed anymore. So these small ones are like the babies of, of the old trees. Anyway, because we're sitting there watching this, this uh, woodpecker thing happen, I'm sitting there staring at what is the biggest wild service tree I've ever seen. But it took 15 minutes of sitting there watching the birds to notice what it was I was looking at. And it was so beautiful that sometimes, sometimes you miss something because you don't sit still for long enough. And I was even staring at it for 15 minutes before... I actually tuned in and noticed what it was. So well, I'm, so, I'm so jealous. <laughs> I just yeah. saw a red-bellied woodpecker the other day. I pointed out to my friend during lunch. You're walking outside. Yeah, this is this is uh, peak migration season for birds in our part of the world. Okay. There's a lot of a lot of birds flying flying through. Although, uh, again, I'm not an, an expert in in birds like violet. Well, they're, they're all um, sort of in the middle of the nesting season at the moment. So, so when you go outside, if you stand still and watch, you'll see lots of very busy and exhausted parents flying backwards and forwards. To I, know the, I know the feeling. <laughs> well, you did the wise thing, Steve. Early on, you got your little bird to, uh, to find out how to forage her own lunch. Oh, it wasn't it wasn't very it wasn't very hard and she loved nature when she was two um she'd uh, come out of the stroller and just make beautiful uh, arrangements with sticks and stones and leaves and just build things that that looked great i really didn't have to do very much yeah yeah and uh once so and she was able just able to walk i stood her in front of a patch of black raspberries and uh, she was hooked. And you let the magic happen. Yeah, yeah. I really didn't have to do much. Uh, uh, black raspberries are incredible. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I mean, I can really relate to that because my, my granddad took me out foraging when I was six and just taught me three species of mushrooms, but that was enough to whet my appetite. And, um, yeah, I've been just hooked oh. ever since. Yeah. When I was when I was six, my mother took me to the country and um, uh, showed me raspberries and blackberries, and mm. that stuck in my in my mind. And then uh, many decades later, I learned about foraging. Uh, sadly, there aren't the uh, blackberries have gone in decline. You know why? No. There's too much competition with the iPhone. With the iPhone. That's terrible. That's terrible. My dad has been telling me these jokes my whole life, and you know, I'm so, I'm not, I'm not sick of them. But I mean, he is an environmentalist. He recycles his jokes. Yeah, that's very, that's very ethical, Steve. Now, listen, I'm going to tell you the funniest joke in the world. Are you ready? Okay. Yes. Okay. What's brown and sticky? What? Shit. A stick. A stick. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You may not realize it, but that really is the funniest joke in the world. It's been it's been scientifically proven. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, one thing I want to say uh, yes. that I forgot about. I have an app. It's called Wild Edibles Forage. Uh, three words. At this point, it just includes uh, American plants. But at some point in the future, I would like to add plants from the uh, from the UK. Uh, right now, I have a problem. My app developer injured his legs. Uh, yeah, very sad. Then he dragged his feet for the next two years. Yeah. Uh, sorry for the lame joke, but when I get a new developer, we're going to we're going to move forward with the uh, with the app. Yeah, why does he need his legs to develop an app? <laughs> Interesting technique, I think. Uh, so, well, I think we should mention some of your books. Like I've I've had this one for. For years, um, identifying and harvesting edible and medicinal plants in wild and not so wild places. Now, that's right. That came out, I think, in the nineties. Now, that's still a good book for people in England. Anyone listening in England, because there's a lot of species in there that are, are British species, and you go into a lot of depth. Um, yeah, and if people get it from my website, wildmanstevebrill.com, yeah. then uh, um, the publisher doesn't get most of the money. Otherwise, I get all of six cents, and Amazon or whatever the equivalent in the UK is, uh, and the publisher gets the rest. 
I also have uh, the Wild Vegan Cookbook and uh, Foraging with Kids. That's a great book. I uh, mean, Foraging New York. Uh, I have a, a DVD as well. So people can go to my website, wildmanstevebrill.com. And if they're ever in the New York area, come on some of the tours. Fantastic. And I just, just want to just clarify a point. So you live in the city, right? I live in this northern suburbs. Uh, um, Westchester. Westchester, New York, just north of the city. I love the fact that you've managed to make a career out of foraging and, um, and yet you're living in the city. That's very cool. Well, we're not exactly living in the city. We're living like right outside the city. It takes like maybe 45 minutes to get there. But... Oh, okay. So it's like a village? Uh, the it's suburbs. A, it's the suburbs. Oh, what's still kind yeah, of city, yeah. right? Yeah, and we're near the Long Island Sound, so yeah. we can get, uh, and it's a rocky shore, so mm. we can get uh, we can get rockweed and uh, sea lettuce all the time, and we got some Irish moss a couple of days ago, too. Brilliant. That sounds really cool. Well, listen, it's been great to have you both, um, and, and funny to have you both on the show. Um, so we'll have to do this again sometime. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Happy foraging. Yeah, happy foraging. Cheers, guys. Bye. 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 Well, thank you for joining us for this week's World Wild podcast. And as ever, I encourage you to leave us a review, rate us, like us, spread the word, and um, help more people to tune in and have access to these kind of thoughts and conversations. Um, and also... Do visit our um, webpage on the Forager Limited site because there's always notes underneath, links to websites and things that we've um, mentioned during the podcast. So, yeah, that's it for this week. 